Father God, these words are not easy to hear, uh, not straightforward in some ways to see what they mean, but we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes so that we would understand what you are saying. And we praise you that you are a God of grace and forgiveness and compassion and love. And so might we see here how you are pointing us to Jesus and to what it means to take refuge in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the time is 100 seconds to midnight. Did you know that? So say the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Uh, this, uh, they published this thing called the Doomsday Clock. And uh, it was first published in 1945 by Albert Einstein and a team of scientists who'd worked on the atomic bomb. And the, the Doomsday Clock is meant to represent how close that this group of eminent scientists, which currently includes 13 Nobel Prize winners, how close they feel human beings are to annihilating themselves. Once a year they publish the new time based on events at that point as they see them. It started at seven minutes to midnight back in 1945. It's gone up and down a bit since then. I don't think it's ever got earlier than seven minutes to midnight, but it's got later and then gone earlier again, you know, according to world events. But 100 seconds to midnight is how it's been since the beginning of 2020. It is the closest to midnight that the clock has ever been. Now, it's interesting to note that Western culture has a very strong sense of the universe and human beings having both a beginning and an end. Have you ever noticed this? You know, a beginning at the Big Bang and, and some kind of similarly catastrophic end, both to humanity and planet Earth and then the universe in, in the end. So what will it be? Will it be a, a pandemic more along the lines of 28 days later than, than COVID perhaps? A meteor strike, climate change, rising sea levels, nuclear war. Will the robots like Ada destroy the human race? Do you know who Ada is? She's been on the news this week, if, if, if it is a she. I think it's kind of meant to be a she. Ada is the world's first ultra-realistic robotic artist. And uh, she was refused entry into Egypt this week, unless her creator agreed to remove her eyes. Um, and her creator wasn't happy with about doing this, so she didn't go to Egypt, as far as I understand. But again, ultimately, the fear is there's a kind of eye-robot apocalypse is going to happen. Um, and then uh, one day we're told, you know, if none of those particular fears, all, all those different things uh, come about, one day we're told the earth will be swallowed up in the sun and then the universe will reach maximum entropy, which is a concept I used to understand, but basically it's not good <laughs> for the universe and that will be that. Now these are the doomsday scenarios that our culture tells itself now, the remarkable thing is that actually not every culture at every time has believed the universe and mankind will have an end. So think about it. Eastern cultures think much more in terms of existence as being circular, talk of reincarnation. 
Uh, what about the Greek and Roman cultures? They, they, had, they had a kind of start to civilization and to the, to the world and the universe as they understood it, but they didn't seem to envisage an end as such. It, you know, they were concerned with the afterlife and what happens when you die and you go to Hades or you go to the Elysian fields and all of that stuff, but the, the earth kind of remains as it, as it is, unchanging forever. It just goes on. And today, people might point to science as the, re the main reason they believe in an end. But it turns out, long before scientists saw this, the people of God in the Bible heard through the prophets of a coming day of the Lord. When history would come to a final climax, there would be a day of reckoning, a day when God would step in to right wrongs and act in judgment and justice. And we've been hearing about that in the book of Joel over the last few weeks. And do go back and listen to the, uh, the last three weeks if, if you've missed that. On the, you can find those talks on the website. God's people have faced this calamity, a natural disaster, a plague of locusts, not all that different in some ways from a kind of COVID pandemic or something like that. It's destroyed everything, this plague that has come. It's ruined the worship of God's people. And Joel says, in effect, the thing you need to understand in the context of this calamity that's come upon the world and upon this people, the thing you need to understand, he says to them, is an even more serious day is coming. The day of the Lord. That was the message of uh, chapter 1, verse 1, up to 2, verse 11. Then we, we, we saw that, that after that, you need to be ready for that day by returning, by repenting. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 27. And then meanwhile, as you wait for that day, you have the Holy Spirit who has been poured out. Joel looked forward to when that would happen. We can look back to when that happens on the day of Pentecost, the fulfilment of these verses we saw last time from chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. You have the Holy Spirit now, so you can know God now and you can tell the world about him as you wait so that anyone on that day, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. That is Joel's message so far. And now, chapter 3 the final chapter, the day of the Lord, finally comes. So let's look at what Joel says about this day. Let's look at what it has to say to us as we turn on the TV and we browse the news online and every day read another pronouncement of doom. Well, the first thing to see is this is the day of the... Here we go. Here, here is the, the, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And this is how Michelangelo imagined this day, for better or worse. But this is one of those things we can easily overlook. But the clue to what this day is about is in the name. This is the Lord's day. It is his day. He is deeply and personally involved in this final day and all that happens. So verse 1, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather, verse 2, I will put them on trial because of what they did to my inheritance. They scattered my people. Verse 3, they cast lots for my people and so on it goes. Verse 4, 
I will swiftly and speedily return on your heads. It's the same through all these verses. Verse 5, my silver, my gold. Verse 7, I will rouse them. I will return on your heads. Verse 8, I will sell. Then verse 12, bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will sit to judge. So verse 14, this is the day of the Lord. Can you see what's going on? This, this valley of Jehoshaphat is not an identifiable place, not a place we can say, oh, there it is in, in, in the, the, you know, the, the land of Israel. But it means, it has a meaning, it means the Lord's judges. It's the place where that happens. This day that Joel speaks of, when God gathers his people and he judges, it's a deeply personal day. Do you see the end of history, as Joel describes it, and as God through Joel talks about it, it's not the mere result of invisible forces of history grinding away in the background and somehow leading inevitably to this end. It's not political tectonic plates rubbing against each other till finally there's an earthquake and the volcano erupts. It's not a merely impersonal consequence of the laws of physics. It is the day when God steps in to put things right. And in particular, to put right the wrongs that the nations that he talks about have done to his people. Do you remember when Saul, who later becomes Paul, is blinded on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts? after he's been making every effort that he can to persecute God's people and put them in prison. And the risen Jesus appears to him in a vision, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Well, Saul's been persecuting God's people. No, why do you persecute me, Jesus says. See, it's always been the case that when God's people are mistreated, he takes it personally. And that is the exact logic here in Joel chapter 3, you've messed with my people and so you're messing with me. So do you see? And what this reminds us is that sin, you see, is so much more than just sort of law breaking, breaking some uh, <clears throat> random list of rules. You know, sometimes we, 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 we end up thinking of God like a kind of officious traffic enforcement officer or something you know I'm afraid by parking with your wheel 10 centimeters over the white line you were in breach of bylaw 7.3 paragraph 4 a copy of which is available in your local library you know the kind of thing no with God the issue is personal it's against him it's personal rejection of him that is the issue at hand now, that may involve going beyond the boundaries on human behavior that he has set down for our good, but it's always in order that we might know him better. His response is that of a parent who sees their child that they have loved and nurtured. He sees that child re reject them and turn their back on them. We know that kind of response. It is a personal response. And for the Christian, for the person trusting in Jesus, I guess knowing our sin is against God personally, well, that, that won't be enough in itself to stop us from sinning, but it might wake us up to how serious it is. Serious enough for God to appoint a day when he will deal with this 
sin personally. When the local branch of the company hear that their performance means the founder and the CEO is going to make a personal visit to sort out the mess, they know they're in trouble. This is the day of the Lord. And therefore, secondly, it is the day of justice. The day of justice. A day where what is wrong is put right. These nations, verse 2, they scattered God's people among the nations. Now, we can't be 100% certain when Joel was writing, but it seems likely that he's writing after the exiles that happened, the exile to Assyria, the exile to Babylon, after God's people have been sold into slavery in foreign lands, and now they've begun to return and rebuild. And he talks earlier in in the book about the temple that was there and then the worship was disrupted, which sort of tells us it must be after people have started to come back from those exiles. But here, look look at what he says to the nations who did this. They scattered. They treated men and women and even children as objects, as slaves. They gave a boy for a night with a prostitute. They gave a girl for a bottle of wine to drink. They took the holy items out of the temple, verse 5. They sold them, verse 6. And now, do you see... God begins to undo that scattering that the nations did. Scattering and gathering are two great themes throughout the whole Bible. Way back in Genesis, actually it's God who begins the scattering. He scatters Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after they sin against him. Later human beings in in Genesis chapter 11, they try to gather around a single language and a single tower but in a way that is asserting their independence of their creator. Not their, not their dependence on the God who made them, but their independence of the Tower of Babel. So what does God do? He comes down and he scatters them in judgment. But now here, what do you see? Well, the nations have taken that kind of divine role of scattering. And now God gathers them. And you see, this is an invitation that they cannot refuse to a battle that they cannot win. First, what they did is done back to them. They sold God's people as slaves. Now they will be sold as slaves. We like to think slavery was eradicated in the 18th century, but of course, actually, it's alive and well, isn't it, in the form of human trafficking, even in this country. It's important to see the Bible has nothing positive to say about slavery. Well, you know, of course, it was a fact of life in in many ways in the ancient world, but especially when it involved the trading of slaves. It is consistently condemned in both Old and New Testaments. But then here in verse 8, you might think if slavery is so wrong... Why does God make these enslaving nations to be slaves? That's what he says, isn't it? But of course, there is all the difference between enslaving innocent men and women and children, which is what they've done, all the difference between that and and taking captive those who have done that enslaving. And think about it. It's a world without prisons, 
a world without modern ways of dispensing justice? What else is appropriate to those who have treated people in this way? But that is what is going on here, do you see? Justice is being served. And then we get a few verses of deep sarcasm. So verse 9, you know, you better tell them, you better tell these nations, prepare for war. And, and verse 10, we, we, we usually hear these verses the other way around. You know, where, um, when, when swords are beat into plowshares and spears to pruning hooks, well, that's a beautiful vision of the new heavens and the new earth to come. But this is sarcasm. It's the other way round. You know, it's as if he's saying, you've heard that prophet Micah, but you guys are going to need swords and spears because the only thing that's coming to you is war and justice. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Well, of course they're not. They don't stand a chance. The harvest, verse 13, is ripe. You know, forget the, the harvest samba and big red combine harvester and primary school assemblies. When the Bible speaks of harvest, it almost always means judgment. This will be a day of trampling. The implication is that the nations are the ones being trampled on. So great is their wickedness, we read. There they are, verse 15, in the valley of decision. What is this valley of decision? Well, it's not a place where they get to decide whether to finally turn back to God. It's too late for that. This is the place where God decides. It's verdict valley, you could say. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. We saw last time that the Bible applies that kind of language to multiple days throughout history, but it also applies it to the end of history, to this day of the Lord, this day of justice. Well, why then is this here, both for them then and for us now? Well, we'll consider this. In one sense, these verses sound like they're addressed to the nations, the other nations, the ones who aren't God's people. But there's no evidence the nations would actually hear these verses. Joel didn't go and preach to them. This is for God's people to hear. God's people needs to hear what will happen on that final day. It's the logic we heard in the second reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in the New Testament. It was that verse where, where Paul says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and he will give relief to you who are troubled. Now this is good news. It is good news for the Christians being hunted by the Taliban in Afghanistan. It's good news for the Christians in labor camps in North Korea. It's good news for the Christian missionaries kidnapped just this week in Haiti. It is good to know there is a God who cares about injustice. No one can escape this day. <clears throat> when the, the papers write that Jeffrey Epstein escaped justice because he took his own life before he could be put on trial well we understand what they mean but but they're wrong he will have to give account for what he did the day of justice means god's people can leave justice to the god of justice 
Do not take revenge, my friends, says Paul. You can see the, the words on the screen. He says in Romans chapter 12, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. What he's saying is you don't need to fight back to get your own justice, to claim your own rights. You can trust God the judge. Now, please don't mishear that. That's not a reason to stay in a situation of abuse or something like that and endure. And actually, the Bible has plenty to say about intervening on behalf of others and claiming justice on behalf of others, and particularly the vulnerable and those who need justice. Plenty to say about that. But we can trust that there is and there will be a day when all these wrongs are put right once and for all. And actually, this is what we pray for. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we realize this, we pray, your kingdom come. We're praying for this day. We're praying for the day where the God of justice acts to put things right. The one remaining issue we must reckon with is that when God puts the world right and he judges with justice the thing is he will do the same for you and me and our only hope then is spelt out in the final verses so briefly now we see thirdly and finally the day of refuge verse 16 at the end there the, the day of justice was the Lord himself stepping in now the Lord himself is a refuge to any who come to him. Remember how before there was scarcity, no food, it was all destroyed. Now <clears throat> the mountains drip with new wine, the hills flow with milk, the ravines run with water. It's a beautiful picture of paradise. But don't miss the best thing about it, verse 17. I, the Lord your God, will dwell in Zion. Zion is where the refuge is. Again, verse 21, the Lord dwells in Zion. Zion historically literally meant the city of Jerusalem, but it then got picked up to mean the place where God dwells, the city that is to come, the new heavens and the new earth, the place where God's people will be united with the God who made them and saved them in eternity. And this is what is missing from so many pictures of heaven or of paradise. So in Islam, for example, you know, paradise consists of all the things that you dutifully denied yourself in this life. Rivers of beer, countless virgins. You know, it's a very male-centric vision of paradise, it seems, the Islamic one. But, but the thing is, Allah is nowhere in sight, because how can he be seen? How could he dwell among his people? It's the same with more kind of secular versions of paradise or utopia that, we, that you know, people dream about. You know, imagine there's no heaven, sang John Lennon. Imagine there's no religion. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, it's lovely till you remember that humanity without a saviour is only capable of edging ever closer to midnight on that doomsday clock and annihilating itself. But here we see not just a perfect future, but a future where the Saviour dwells amongst his people. 
See, the best thing about the day of the Lord is this. Jesus is there. And we will know him face to face. And the reason that will be possible, verse 19, is that sin will have been dealt with. In, in Joel's terms, Egypt desolate, Edom a desert waste. God's enemies dealt with, vanquished. All of this is only possible ultimately because there this same Jesus willingly took the judgment and justice that his people deserve. He took what has been described in verses 1 to 16 and earlier in the book. He took it on his own shoulders at the cross so that he could be our refuge on that day if we will come to him and trust him. So that even though we are sinners and even though we, are, we deserve all that verses 1 to 16 speak of, that we're part of the nations, as it were, well, the punishment we deserve has been done on Jesus already, if we trust him. The day of the Lord has come in advance at the cross. And so now, as we saw last time, with the Holy Spirit's help, we wait patiently for that day and we share the news of where others too can find refuge on the day of the Lord to come. Until then, it will be tough. There will be more days of locusts to come, worldwide days like pandemics that everyone knows about. There will be personal days that only we know about but feel like a day of the Lord in, in, in that, little, that smaller way. But the big final day of the Lord is still to come. This vision of judgment might concern us as we consider those we know who do not trust in Jesus yet. It's important to remember this is about those who remain impenitent, unrepentant to the end. There's still time for anybody to respond to that news of chapter 2, verse 32, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. There's still time to pray for them. There's still time to come for ourselves if we've not yet done that. To come to this God of compassion and mercy who gives us what we don't deserve, who steps in to sort out history, but says, come to me and let me be your refuge so that you need not receive the justice you deserve but might dwell with me forever in this vision of a perfect future without sin and suffering and sadness and pain and even when it's too late to pray for our loved ones and to tell them we know this Jesus and we want them to know this too, that, that Jesus too when, when it's too late well, we know we have a God who is perfectly just, who always does what is right. Our notions of what is right and just and fair come from him. That's why we care about justice and fairness, because he is just and fair. So with all of these things, we need to trust him. But for now, though, let, let's consider as we finish those forecasts of doom and gloom that we read of and hear of daily that cause us to fear and tremble. The climate change, nuclear Armageddon, meteors, pandemics, robots, whatever it is. 
See, in one sense, those forecasts don't go nearly far enough. Maybe the end that God brings about will come through one of those events, or maybe it won't. But what actually matters is what follows the end. Not at a hundred seconds to midnight, not at one minute to midnight, not at ten seconds to midnight, not at one second to midnight, not even at midnight itself. But at midnight plus one second as the new day begins. There is a new day coming. God is going to act in judgment and justice. There will be a world without sin and sadness and mourning and crying and pain. And the other side of midnight is a new day where those who trust in Jesus get to live face to face with their saviour who died and rose out of love for his people. And so we're surrounded in our culture now by fear. And, you know, we've thought about the different ways in which we respond to these things as we've looked through the book of Joel and we sometimes hide away and we ignore it or we think we can fix it or we just get despair in despair about it. But as Joel finishes this extraordinary book, he gives us reasons to be hopeful, reasons to be positive, reasons to look beyond the great day of the Lord to the new day to come. And so he says to each one of us now, come and take refuge in this Lord and wait patiently till he comes. Let's have a moment of quiet to reflect for ourselves on our own response to this and I'll lead us in prayer together. Father, we thank you that you give us a clear understanding of what is to come. That one day you will judge the world, you will put things right, you will act in justice. And we thank you that that is good news for those who suffer now. And we think of those especially who do suffer in these days around the world and here amongst us. And particularly those who suffer for their faith in Jesus. But we thank you too that we have reason for hope. Reason for 
positivity as we look to the future, as we look beyond that day. For this vision of a new day to come. Where you will dwell among your people that you saved. And so we come to you. We trust in the Lord Jesus. We call on his name. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Living in us now. Giving us patience, giving us faith, giving us hope and giving us even joy in a fallen world. And may we share this message with those around us, our families and friends and neighbours and colleagues as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.